Welcome to the Eco News Report. I'm your host this week, Tom Wheeler, Executive Director of EPIC, the Environmental Protection Information Center. And joined is my friend and colleague, the Executive Director of the North Coast Environmental Center, Caroline Griffith. Hey, Caroline. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm doing well. And we are joined by Jack Irvine. Jack is the spokesman for the Which Way the Wind Festival. Welcome to the Econ News Report, Jack. Delighted to be here. Thanks for the invitation. All right. Just briefly, what is the one-sentence synopsis? What is the Which Way the Wind Festival? I wish I could give it a one-sentence description, but can't. I will do my best with probably more than one sentence. So the Which Way the Wind Festival is a bringing together of the community really to talk about two particular things. One, the risk of nuclear weaponry, nuclear war, and the nuclear fuel rods stored here. And the second, to talk about global warming and the effects that that's going to have on the Humboldt Bay community. All right. I, I feel like that was pretty much one sentence. So which way the wind? This is a relatively recent festival. When, when did you all get started? My engagement with this really began in the mid-2000s, and it was really around the, quote, golden rule, and the attempts of the local veterans for peace to restore the, quote, golden rule. And golden rule has a very historic role in the anti-nuclear movement in the United States. It was the first anti-nuclear boat to attempt to protest above-ground nuclear testing in the Marshall Islands. So to give you some background to that, in 1958, Albert Bigelow, a Quaker from Massachusetts, who was an anti-nuclear activist, had the idea that he would try and sail into the nuclear test zone in the Marshall Islands to protest nuclear weapon testing. He did this very publicly, advertised it to everyone, and left from San Pedro, headed to Honolulu. At the time he left, there was no law prohibiting American ships going into the nuclear test zone. By the time he arrives in Honolulu, there's a law. And he's presented on the dock when he arrives with a U.S. Marshal who says, look, it's now against the law for you to do this. That does not deter Bigelow and his Quaker crew. They make two attempts to sail to the Marshall Islands. Both times they're stopped by the Coast Guard. Both times they're jailed. The first time they're let out on parole. Second time they're jailed and sentenced to six months in prison. They only serve two of those months, but they're sentenced to prison. When Bigelow returns to the United States in later 1958, he wants to capitalize on the publicity that's been generated around the Golden Rule and around the anti-nuclear movement. He convinces the Quakers to support that effort nationally, and they write an anti-war play Philip Lewis writes an anti-war play that's called Which Way the Wind. That play is narrated by Albert Bigelow and travels both coasts in 1959 and again travels both coasts in 1960, but without Bigelow as the narrator. As near as I could tell, that play had never been restaged from 1960. I got a copy of that play, which is pretty scarce, and I read that. I found it was still very relevant and germane. I showed it to a body messenger who agreed with me, suggested I should get in touch with John Heckel, who was a retired theater arts professor at Humboldt, which I did. He read the play. He agreed that it was relevant and germane. We then gathered a group around us with the intention of restaging the play as a way of raising money for the Golden Rule. 
as we explored and read that play to each other and acted sort of it out, it also became clear that the themes touched in this play are much larger than simply anti-nuclear and anti-war, and we began to expand what we wanted to do, and we ended up with a whole week-long festival in 2018. We repeated that same thing in 2019, broadening our scope a little bit to be more environmental as well as anti-nuclear. We had planned a festival in 2020 and in 2021, but was interrupted by COVID, and we're back at it in 2022, attempting the same thing, with the mission being to inform and educate uh, our community around the issues of nuclear, around the issues of global warming, and provide them some information and hopefully ways that they can take action themselves on both of these issues. That's our purpose, I think. Go ahead, Caroline. Well, we have a lot of old issues of Econews archived in our office. And when I took over a few years ago as editor, spent a lot of time just reading old issues to see what it was that we had worked on in the past and kind of, you know, wanting to get some idea of like those things that we don't work on anymore. And one of the things that is really, really prevalent in older issues is discussion of nuclear power, the big anti-nuclear movement here in Humboldt County. And this is one of those things that when I was reading it in 2020, was thinking, well, this is really, I mean, here's one of our success stories, right? Like we don't talk as much about nuclear anymore. That's not as much of a big deal. And it seemed like a very antiquated thing. A lot of us who are younger grew up in an era where we didn't do bomb drills in school. We didn't worry as much about this. We didn't have this hanging over us. So it was really interesting to me over the last year, once once the Ukraine was invaded by Russia, to really think, oh, right, this is a thing that we do still have to worry about. And then to further realize that we still have spent, we have fuel here that is stored in Humboldt Bay, but also the Inflation Reduction Act, which was recently passed, had subsidies for increased nuclear power plant production. So realizing that the cycle continues, right, this is not something that has gone away, and this is still very much a relevant issue. And so I'm curious what what within the festival that you are doing to really help bring this, especially to a younger generation who hasn't hasn't spent as much time thinking about the, the dangers of nuclear war or the impacts of nuclear power. Carolyn, you're absolutely right. You know, this has just been, it has not been on people's radar over the last 50 years. We've become quite complacent about the issues about nuclear weaponry. When we began this in 2018, we had a very hard time engaging our community in nuclear issues. Environmental issues, global warming, were really front and center. And we learned that the way to begin to talk about nuclear threats, nuclear weaponry, was to come in through the environment. So we want to consider that there are two existential threats to our world. We have global warming and we have nuclear. One is going to take 50 years to happen, or maybe less, but the other can happen in 15 minutes. And we need to really be paying attention to that. The world did pay attention in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, and that attention really led to a lot of treaties around reduction in nuclear weaponry. And just parenthetically, perhaps, all those movements that led to these treaties were really community-based, worldwide activities that pushed politicians to create those treaties. The way we're going to address that is really in three different events. We have a 
tour on the Madigan boat tour on Sunday, October the 9th. On that tour will be Marnie Atkins, the director of the Weah Cultural Center, Jerry Rohde, a local historian who has written a book about the historical changes on the bay, and Alderon Laird, who knows the physical geography of the bay in every detail, every nook and cranny. The boat will be piloted by Leroy Zerlang, who played a really important role in the resurrection, if you will, of the Golden Rule. We will look at Tuluat, the Wiat sacred site, which is going to be underwater with global warming. We're going to look at the bayfront, especially along the Eureka edge of the bayfront, to talk about the historic changes. And we're going to go and look at Booner Point, where the nuclear rods are, are stored. Alderon will talk about what's going to happen around our bay communities with a three-foot rise in sea level. Manila, Samoa, Fairhaven, Fields Landing, King Salmon, all go underwater. And our highway corridor at CR and at Bayside are underwater as well with three foot of sea rise. So our own transportation corridor is threatened. In addition to the Madigan boat tour, on Tuesday we're having a nuclear discuss panel discussion with some really very expert people. Robert Gould, who is the head of Physicians for Social Responsibility in San Francisco, has been the president of that organization nationally in the past, uh, will be here. Jackie Cabasso, who's the U.S. representative for an international organization called Mayors for Peace, which is working on the Back from the Brink campaign, will be here to talk about that. And she has just returned from New York, where she spent a month at the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty Conference, which is held every five years. She will talk about that whole month-long discussion. And we also have Dale Preston, who is a local expert on ionizing radiation and has been working with the U.S. government and other governments to measure the long-term effects of radiation on the survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He has been a consultant at Chernobyl, Fukushima, and other nuclear power plants, and travels widely talking about ionizing radiation. In that nuclear panel, we want to talk about the Non-Proliferation Treaty, we want to talk about the Treaty for the Prevention of Nuclear Weaponry, which is the UN Treaty. We want to talk about the Back from the Brink campaign, and we also want to talk about the huge effects of our defense spending has on the allocation of U.S. resources. Yesterday, I read in the New York Times where Paul Krugman says, you know, we need to look at the U.S. government as really, it's an insurance policy with an army. <laughs> and what he meant was, the insurance policies are healthcare spending and retirement, Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid with an army. And that takes up the vast amount of all the money the U.S. government spends. And that just sort of lit a light in me, like, but yeah, really, that's what we have as a federal government. And, you know, our defense spending, $800 billion, sucks up. It's responsible for student debt. It's responsible for poverty. It's responsible for high tuition. Just on and on and on. It just distorts everything we do. Anyway, so that's that panel, and that will explore all of those themes. And then on Thursday, we have our environmental panel, which is really focused on Humboldt Bay. So 
Jennifer Cole, director of the Humboldt Baykeepers, Jennifer Marlowe, who wrote the seminal paper, 44 feet above sea level, and is an expert on the stored nuclear rods at Booner Point. Stephen Coleman, who's a member of the Harbor Commission and part of Redwood Coast Energy Authority, and Alex Brown, who is a graduate student at Humboldt, will be there to discuss the bay, sea level rise, and the stored nuclear rods. All of our themes around global warming and nuclear really can be talked about when we talk about the Bay and, the, and what's going on in the Bay. So that's how we're addressing nuclear and the Bay and trying to tie all that together. And there's also a substantial art component to all of this. And this is a deliberate part of the festival to, to try to link a very heavy subject matter with performance. Can you, can you talk about the art that is being done at the festival? Part of our mission, as we outlined it for ourselves, is to really connect these issues through the arts. So art brings a, such a different perspective to all of these issues and allows people a different entry point. So every one of our events has an art component to it. It's going to be, we have a night of drama from high school kids at the North Coast Performing Academy and Eureka High School are going to join together with a play and interpretation of that play on Friday and Saturday, the 7th and the 8th. We have the Mattica tour. There will be music at Mattica Plaza to bring us onto the boat. Tuesday, we have a poetry being performed by a local poet who's going to have a, a couple of poems around nuclear issues. We have a, a cabaret evening, a burlesque and comedy on Wednesday. On Thursday, we have Chubritza to bring people into a synapsis and to play during intermission. And then on Friday is poetry, a group of six poets reading poetry around our themes. And on Saturday is the music event, a songwriters contest with winners performing their, some of their songs on that night, as well as two local bands performing. And then we have an art contest that we'll be displaying at Synapsis during the festival. And then all that art will move to the Redwood Art Association for a month in mid-November to mid-December. So that's, that's the art component to each of our events. It's really a packed festival. Let me, let me say what I'm most looking forward to, which is the Friday Poetry Show, because you have two of my favorite poets, and Jerry Martini and Katie Gurin. If you haven't heard them before, they are just absolutely fantastic and really are great environmental poets as well, bring in constantly themes of nature into their poetry. And they're also friends of, of our organization, so plug to them as well for that. The Eco News Report. This week, we're talking with Jack Irvine, the spokesman for the Which Way the Wind Festival. We, we are in somewhat perilous times now. It is different in 2022 than it was in 2018 when you first started the festival. There is a renewed discussion on non-proliferation, on the threat of nuclear weapons in Russia and the potential deployment by by Russia. So as we record this today, this is Tuesday, the 27th, we have sham elections going on in occupied parts of Ukraine and Russia making threats that if these become part of the Russian Federation, that the Russian Federation will not stop and they will use all means necessary to protect their their land. What What does nuclear non-proliferation look like today? What, where are the conversations being had? Where are the prospects for movement 
in, in getting these weapons banned? I'm certainly not an expert on that at all. And I expect Jackie Cabasa will help us a great deal to understand where that is. I do understand that the outcome of the nonproliferation conference that was held just last month was no statement, no statement could be reached. The nuclear, the nuclear states, the nine of them, are absolutely not moving anywhere in terms of nonproliferation. There's no discussion going on. That's really disheartening. If you go back to the Nonproliferation Treaty, which was executed in 1970, there were three pillars of that treaty. One was that the nuclear states that had nuclear weapons would share their knowledge around non-weaponry nuclear power. Secondly, all the non-nuclear states would refrain from becoming nuclear states. And the third and really vital pillar of that was that the nuclear states would work toward nuclear disarmament. They next met in 19, I think, 95, and agreed then to meet every five years after that. And the non-nuclear states, which is basically the rest of the world other than the nine nuclear states, have been saying, you know, you guys are not doing anything about one of these pillars. We're supposed to do everything that we are asked to do. And I think, do we all not recognize that if the world were voting tomorrow, would the world vote for disarmament or would we vote for another arms race, which we're engaged in right now? The U.S., through all of, through Obama, through Trump, onto Biden, we are committed to renewing all of our nuclear weaponry over the next 30 years. That's a spending somewhere estimated between around $1.7 trillion dollars. That turns out to be like $50 million a day for the next 30 years. That's what we're committing ourselves to. Meanwhile, Russia's upgrading their nuclear weaponry. China's upgrading their nuclear weaponry. We have North Korea, who feels that they're only hanging on as a, quote, country because they have nuclear weaponry. We are also militarizing space. We are pushing a whole new arms race around hypersonic weaponry. We are moving to a very, very dangerous position in the world. And we also learn through Ukraine and through Putin that you don't have to explode a nuclear bomb to have nuclear issues. Nuclear power plants in Ukraine have become military targets. And in the fog of war, and a missile hits a nuclear power plant, and destroys and lets all that radiation out, no one will know who did that because each side will say it was you, no, it was me, no, it was, no, it wasn't me, it was you. And the fog of war will not allow us to know. All we will know is there's radiation spreading around in the vicinity. It's just a terrible situation at the moment, I think. The Union of Concerned Scientists, which has been maintaining the doomsday clock for, what, 50 plus years, move that clock to 100 seconds to midnight in 2021. Can you explain what the doomsday clock is? Yes, it's how close we are to nuclear war, the threat of nuclear war, and Armageddon, basically. Human extinction. Human extinction. Yep. It was, they moved it a couple of years ago to two minutes to midnight. In 2021, they moved it to 100 seconds. It's never, ever, ever been that close to midnight in the history of the organization. 
They haven't changed it with the invasion of Ukraine, although I know that discussion is ongoing. Um, I, one thing that I, I appreciate about this this festival and just the renewed focus on it is the tying together the war machine with climate change and with the environment. And that's something that I think that a lot of early environmental activists knew and saw. And you can see that like as I'm looking through old eco news that these two these two things are very closely linked together, right? And that to be, pro-environment means to be anti-war. And I think that that is something that has kind of fallen off of our radars recently, certainly since kind of renewed itself during the Iraq war in the early 2000s, when people saw the connection between the war machine and oil. But to really see that these two things are not are not separate at all. They are very, very much linked and that our survival really depends on looking at both of these aspects of it. But I want to go back to something that you said a minute ago, Jack, about a radiation cloud, which made me wonder if is that's where the, the title of this festival and the title of the play comes from. What's the significance of Which Way the Wind? Indeed. Thank, thank you for asking that. Because when you hear just Which Way the Wind, I don't know that anybody completely understands what we are about and what our goals are. But Which Way the Wind is the name of the play that Albert Bigelow had commissioned Philip Lewis to write. And the name comes from a line in the play. So at near the end of the play, there's a, a general sitting before a committee of, of the Senate. And the senator says to the general, What's, what happens, general, in a nuclear explosion in a large city? And the answer that the general gives, he says, Senator, that depends on which way the wind blows. And we took that, Phil, Phil Lewis named his play after that line, and we took that line as something that looks at a variety of things in our world. It's a colloquialism for everything, isn't it? So what, what are the effects of climate change? Well, that depends which way the wind. What are the effects of a nuclear rods stored at Booner Point? Well, that depends. It's which way the wind. So we use that as an entry point to a lot of these issues, and that's where that name came from. I guess another thing I'd like to just mention, I think the golden rule, I'm so proud of the golden rule and what was done with that boat. So just to give a little background to that for the audience, in 2010, that boat sinks over on Fairhaven, right in front of Leroy Zerlang's boatyard. It just goes to the bottom. And Leroy had been telling the owner of the boat that he was he needed to do a better job taking care of that boat. How did it end up in Humboldt in the first place? We have no idea. Okay, there we go. Perfect no answer. Idea. So Bigelow sells the boat when he leaves Honolulu in, in 1958. We know who owns it then, and we know who owns it for a few years after, and then it just disappears off the radar. And this boat sinks. Leroy Zerlang resurrects the boat and pulls it onto his property, but it's a wreck. It is just total wreck. He knows it's sort of a historic boat, but it's such a mess. He decides he's going to call Chuck DeWitt, and the two of them are going to get a bottle of Baker's Mark, and they're going to sit and have a bonfire and burn the boat and just have a, and get loaded. But he hears that it's famous, and he sort of puts it out on, I think he puts it out on eBay, and he gets some responses. There are people who know about the Golden Rule. He's contacted by the Smithsonian. He's contacted by Swarthmore, who have a large peace collection. And he's contacted by other people. And he has it for sale. But no one really wants to buy it, but they do think about preserving it. 
And then the Veterans for Peace in Garberville hears about this and they come up and they want to take a look at this boat. And Freddie Champagne is the head of Garberville Veterans for Peace. And he comes up and he looks at this boat and he says to Leroy, you know, I, I'd like to take this out as a project. And Leroy says, what do you know about boat building? <laughs> and he doesn't know anything, but he's a longtime anti-war activist and a fun, he knows about fundraising. And really, he then partners with Veterans Peace Humble Bay, and those two groups begin this restoration project in 2010. It takes them five years to get it done, and in 2015, they're able to relaunch the boat into Humboldt Bay. This is its home port. It just left here a month ago. It's now somewhere up in the upper Mississippi, I think, planning to travel down the Mississippi and then through the Great Lakes, active with its mission of working for anti-nuclear. Other connection I just would love to talk about, a little bit anyway, is how Golden Rule was the inspiration for Greenpeace. Yeah, let's talk about that, because Golden Rule was the first the first time that a boat had been employed for civil disobedience in, in this sort of way. And, and the, exactly. the connection to me seems obvious, but you tell the story. Well, there's a group that they, we're now fast forward to like 1971, and the U.S. is again doing above-ground nuclear testing, but this time they're in the Aleutian Islands. In Vancouver, British Columbia, there's a group of Canadian anti-nuclear activists and expatriate American anti-nuclear activists who are there because of the Vietnam-era war and they've left and gone to Canada. So this group wants to do something around that issue and a woman named Helen Boland is a member of this group and she is aware of the history of the Golden Rule. She comes to this group and says, look what the Golden Rule did in 1958, we could do something similar. They go out and they get a old fishing boat called the Phyllis Cormac with the intention of sailing that into the nuclear test zone in the Aleutians. They rename that boat Greenpeace, and they attempt to go into the Aleutians. They, like Golden Rule, is stopped by the Coast Guard. They never do get there, but they come back, and that's the beginning of Greenpeace as an anti-nuclear and then larger role, whale and you know activism around the world. That's Greenpeace's connection to Golden Rule. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure how the Golden Rule ended up in Humboldt, but I feel like, I feel like, given our history of civil disobedience here, it, it is perfectly appropriate <laughs> that that we were the place where she was found again. Yeah, yeah. And I think you know, it, it's that activism that leads these guys to rebuild this boat over a five year period of time, really devoting an enormous amount of time and energy to that effort. It's really a monumental undertaking that they do. So you you said that she is sailing on the Mississippi now? The intention, you can go to their website, Golden Rule, and and find out that route. But yes, I believe that their intention is to sail along the Mississippi, through the Great Lakes, into the St. Lawrence, and doing their activism along the way. Yeah. Very cool. There's time I feel like we should put a shout out in there for the Veterans for Peace, because I got to say that that is an organization that... Their civil disobedience around the world is really inspiring, and they have been connecting environmental issues and war for as long as I've known about them. And they're they're out there protesting climate change. They're shutting things down. And I think, like, really kind of going under the radar here. So when you you pass the the fellas in front of the courthouse next Thursday or whenever they're there, give them a honk or stop by and say hello. They're really pretty rad. 
They, they definitely are. They've been great partners for us as well. They were, they were the sponsoring organization when we started. We're now in the Humboldt Area Foundation, but they sponsored us in 18 and 19. Peter Aronson, who's been a 40-year member of Veterans for Peace and stood in front of the courthouse on Friday afternoons for 20 years, every single Friday, is a member of our steering committee and very active, and we're very connected to Veterans for Peace. I just talked to, had a communication with Freddie Champagne just the other day as well. So still doing it in Fortuna. Yeah. Very cool. All right. So if you're interested in more information, the festival runs from October 7th through the 15th, and you can find more at whichwaythewind.org. You can also find that link in our show notes on the lostcoastoutpost.com. Jack, thank you so much for joining the Eco News Report, and I look forward to seeing you at the festival. Great to be invited. I appreciate that. Love everybody to join us. I think we have really an outstanding program to present to the community. So thanks again. And join us again on This Time and Channel next week for more environmental news from the North Coast of California.